let me uh, remind the listeners that nobody chooses to be a refugee. You're listening to Season 3 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we're examining the situation in Iraq. In 2019, close to 6.4 million Iraqis were determined people of concern by UNHCR, including close to 274,000 refugees and 1.4 million IDPs, or internally displaced persons. Iraq also hosts 240,000 Syrian refugees as of 2020. Today, we are speaking with Faraz Al-Khatib, a communication and public information officer for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, in Iraq. Your host for this week is me, Jackie Burnett. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast episode with me today to talk about UNHCR, the work you do, and refugees, IDPs, and the situation in Iraq. To begin with, I would love if you could just tell me and our listeners a little bit about you, your role, and how you got here. Uh, Thank you. My name is Firas Al-Khatib. I've joined uh, UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, uh, since 2013. I was stationed in uh, as a communication and public information officer and a spokesperson. Uh, I joined, the um, first uh, assignment was in Syria, uh, inside Syria. And as you uh, uh, know, Syria is the biggest uh, refugee crisis in the world with over 7 million displaced people inside the country and outside. Uh, so I joined uh, in, in Syria. Then I served one year in Bangladesh dealing with the Rohingya refugee uh, crisis. And two years ago, I joined uh, UNHCR Iraq, the Iraqi operation, which has uh, about 270,000 Syrian refugees and over currently 1.4 million displaced Iraqis. In the past two years, uh, also, we have uh, something like 4 million uh, displaced Iraqis returned returned to their homes. So they're now returnees, but they still need services. And uh, so basically, uh, this is uh, in a brief. I bet it's very interesting to have those multiple perspectives from Syria, Bangladesh, and then now in Iraq, and especially in Iraq, given how many Syrian refugees are in there. Before we get into that, a word we throw around on the podcast a lot is UNHCR, um, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. However, I'd love to know um, a little bit more about exactly what UNHCR does, its role um, globally, and then also specifically what it's doing in Iraq. UNHCR, as the name indicates, is the refugee agency. Uh, it deals with and uh, provides protection to almost now, uh, unfortunately, we have about 80 million displaced uh, people internally inside their own countries. And uh, out of them is about 25 million refugees that crossed borders to seek refuge in neighboring countries. So we have refugees, uh, about 25 million, and we have about uh, 65 million displaced internally due to armed conflict, to um, persecution. Sometimes, Sometimes it's natural disasters that you know, forces people to move. But uh, let me uh, remind the listeners that nobody chooses to be a refugee or leaves home 
so it's uh, usually persecution, armed conflict that drives people to leave their home in search of safety and refuge. That is a very, very important reminder. So does UNHCR provide, um, I know refugee camps or um, displaced persons camps are a big idea in a lot of people's minds. Does UNHCR support those or provide some kind of housing or primarily what does the assistance look like? Assistance has a, a different uh, aspect. Yes, you have the shelter, uh, which is in, certain, in some cases uh, camps, uh, which are for refugees. But let me uh, add to that, that um, almost 65% of refugees don't live in camps. They live within cities. The kind of help we provide is uh, different sectors. We have uh, shelter. Uh, we have uh, water, food, winter assistance, uh, what we call core relief items that are mattresses, blankets, quilts, and um, different things they need within their uh, shelter. But when refugees move on and they uh, go live in urban areas or in cities, they rent apartments, and that's when we uh, sometimes provide them with cash assistance. There's multi-purpose cash. And there is cash for hygiene, like now in Corona times, we give them cash for hygiene to buy disinfectants and stay healthy. And then there is the winter assistance cash, uh, which is given once a year for winter so they can buy what they need to stay uh, warm and uh, protect themselves. So protection also does not only... um, is not only physical aspects, but there are also legal protection and uh, providing providing them with residency, with their documents, uh, birth uh, registration and um, uh, identification so that they will never uh, be forced to leave the country. And that's the first uh, basic baseline for protection. And they will avoid in the future becoming stateless if they go back to their uh, uh, original countries. So yes, we do uh, provide a, a series of different uh, help. And uh, this also is done with partners, with other UN agencies. So we have a sectorial approach in every country where there is a crisis. So you have the shelter cluster, which is uh, uh, over all the agencies that work in cluster, we help them. And uh, we have the protection, the water, the health, healthcare. Of course, we also support governments and local authorities with uh, health care so that they can provide free health care to refugees and displaced people. It's all very, very important. Um, I know we all wish that you all didn't have to do this, but at least there is some assistance out there. You did mention winter cash assistance program and winter supplies. I know obviously it will probably get very cold and for refugees who might not have a shelter or the winter supplies, what does the winter months look like um, and how does assistance change in that? Or like, what are a lot of the issues that refugees and IDPs face during the winter months? Well, in this part of the world, I'm talking about the Syria Syria crisis, which is Syria and its neighboring state. That includes Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Egypt. The winter is very harsh in this part of the world. We have four seasons, and winter, uh, there's sub-zero temperatures in the winter. It gets a lot of snow and rain, and there's wind. So if you're living in a tent or a very thin uh, shelter, that's 
I'm sure that you will feel the cold and that's where you need warm blankets. We, we supply high thermal blankets, winter clothes, and uh, in addition to the winter cash assistance. And that sometimes is not enough. There's also help with uh, kerosene, you know, buying uh, fuel for uh, heaters, which we distribute also. So that's uh, another kind of support because you know, in winter it gets very cold. So refugees need to be protected from the cold. Very important. I think, especially in the United States, a lot of individuals have a view of that region and the Middle East in general that maybe it doesn't get winter um, or it's very hot all the time. And it's not, not tropical. Not it's, it's four seasonal and gets very cold in the in the winter. Yes. Yes. Um, I know another issue that you all are, you all might be gearing up to deal with winter, um, but one that you've been facing is COVID-19. And I just want to know how really the effect that has had on how UNHCR operates, how your job works day to day, and on how refugees and IDPs are functioning. Yes, uh, COVID-19 posed a, a new kind of challenge to us. Like most countries, you know, uh, the um, the lockdowns and the quarantines and the aftermath, the impact on economy was huge. And uh, most of these refugees, when they work, they work simple jobs, daily labor jobs that uh, were affected and they just stopped. Uh, and uh, they don't have like social security. They're not part of any uh, system. So they depended a lot on the cash for hygiene that we uh, provided during those uh, quarantine months. And um, we, of course, ensured that uh, local authorities and the government allows free health care for them if they need free health care. And in the, uh, we, of course, did a lot of awareness sessions on how to protect the family and how to, um, uh, we, we supplied the um, and distributed hygiene kits, uh, PPE uh, kits, uh, so that they would, you know, keep protected disinfectants and use uh, face masks and the awareness, of course, to uh, maintain social distancing when moving. And uh, of course, we cannot help the economy. And then, you know, this is something that is global and uh, uh, we, uh, we have invested a lot in long-term projects to help livelihood vocational training, but this takes time. And uh, with our partners, um, we try to support them. And uh, we have a lot of the United States and uh, Europe, basically the EU and certain European countries have uh, supported us in uh, donating uh, funds towards the cash assistance, to towards the winter help and the COVID, uh, uh, because we did launch an appeal to, to finance the organization just for the pandemic, for the COVID-19 pandemic. So, uh, yes, we, we have had issues and we are facing challenges because a lot of the people, uh, a lot of the refugees who previously had um, gainful uh, employment and, and work opportunities lost that and became dependent on uh, humanitarian assistance. And I would like to add just something uh, here that... Humanitarian assistance uh, really saves lives, but we don't want people to become dependent uh, as they are uh, living outside their countries. Uh, we uh, 
support them so they can integrate and become useful members of the society and the community they live in. And uh, they become resilient and depend on themselves. So we don't want them to be dependent on uh, humanitarian assistance all their lives, but become uh, you know, resilient and work and grow within these new communities. That is a great point. I worked with a refugee resettlement agency where I live, and one of the big points was making sure that these refugees who are resettled do become dependent on themselves instead of the assistance provided by the government, which I think is very important and really helps them have a better life when they come here. I know that one of the um, durable solutions promoted by the UN is resettlement to a third country um, and then returning to your home country. Was travel restricted in that sense or were refugees more able to continue to move between countries or within their own country? UNHCR always calls for free movement of refugees, people who need to seek refuge and escape uh, violence and war and armed conflict have the right uh, to to flee, to go uh, seek safety somewhere else. However, because of the pandemic, certain countries uh, or most countries in the region have closed down their borders. But our conversation with the governments uh, continued and we always asked for um, exceptions when people are fleeing. So, yes, for example, in Iraq, uh, there was a temporary uh, period where they closed down totally. But then we uh, convinced them to open temporarily twice a week. So there was movement between Syria and Iraq twice a week. People need to go back. People need to come uh, and seek uh, refuge. It depends. Every family has um, certain conditions. Some people need to go back to see their family, maybe attend the family funeral or uh, feel the need. Maybe some of them feel their area is now safe. So, And mind you, please, that uh, usually... uh, Return has to be voluntary, safe, and with dignity. We only support a return that is uh, that applies uh, these conditions. And yes, we always work with governments and we call for free movement and no restrictions. You did turn more into Iraq specifically, and so I do want to turn to that. For our listeners who might not be as familiar with the history of Iraq and the conflict currently there, Could you explain, you mentioned a lot of numbers of what the current situation is, but I would love it if you could just tell how we got here, kind of the history of the situation and how it has impacted the current situation, I guess, in Iraq. Yes. In 2011, the Syria situation, it started with uh, violence and armed conflict across most parts of the country, which led millions of people to flee and to seek refuge in neighboring countries and leave areas of of danger and uh, even within inside the country so they would move away from conflicts into other areas that are safer inside Syria. But millions fled the country and went to Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Turkey, uh, depending, of course, usually people leave uh, their um, homes uh, when they're forced to, to flee, and they go to the most convenient uh, place. Uh, they first go to Uh, perhaps other neighbors' homes or friends' homes inside the country. They go to villages that are away from the conflict. But when they feel that they still have uh, dangers within the country, they decide to cross international borders, thus becoming uh, refugees. 
So you had Syrians fleeing the 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 armed conflict in Syria, leaving to neighboring uh, states, including Iraq. Then Iraq had its share of uh, war with ISIS, uh, internal fighting, a conflict that all started between 2010 to 2014. And that period was very um, violent and bloody inside Iraq. So yet another crisis and people uh, moved from their homes and were forced to flee internally to other to camps that were provided by the local authorities and supported by the United Nations, and some uh, left uh, the country. So we have Syrian refugees inside Iraq, about 270,000 now, and we have internally displaced Iraqis, now 1.4 million. 5 million uh, Iraqis returned to their uh, homes, and now the government recently decided to close all uh, displacement camps and are asking people to go back to their places of origin. Of course, this also is becoming a challenge to us because uh, many of these villages and areas where the displaced people are to return to uh, lack uh, basic services. So the, the UN, UNHCR, is supporting with and investing a lot in infrastructure and helping those people to get a fresh start in their places of origin because many of the homes are destroyed. You're mentioning that the government closed down um, displaced camp or displaced persons camps um, in Iraq. So I'm assuming that means when they're asked to return to their country of origin, that it wouldn't necessarily be a voluntary um, return. They're more forced to. These are Iraqis internally displaced, and um, when they decide to close down a camp. Now, we uh, have this uh, conversation uh, to, with the government, and we, uh, we raised our concerns and our fears with the local authorities that some of these people may uh, have issues returning uh, back because of different reasons. Now, you have lack of services, damaged homes. You have some areas are even, they still have mines. And, uh, you know, after the, the fighting and all those wars, they it's not safe to return. So we have to work on different levels, work with the army and the military to ensure that uh, all the areas are free of mines and they do uh, demining efforts. Uh, some branches of the United Nations also does uh, demining. Once we uh, are sure that the areas are clear and safe to return to, then uh, we have to look at the infrastructure, uh, restoring water, electricity, roads. Sometimes even paved roads are, do not exist, so you have that. And then you have to wor worry about the livelihood, the schools, and what have you that, you know, the things needed for people to return and function and, and uh, live a normal life in the camp all of these services were provided. Outside the camp, a lot of these services are not available. So that's what we have to support. And so we asked the government to delay and to allow people the choice. If they don't want to go back, they should not be forced. So the options they have is to go to another camp. If they, their camp closes, they go to another established camp that is not closed yet. And people who don't want to return for one reason or the other have the right to stay inside their country where they want. I saw on your, I was looking through Twitter um, and I saw a tweet that you had wrote about two girls who 
after a displaced person's camp was closed, had to return home. And I think there's a quote that you said, there's no school, no electricity, no water supply. So it sounds like this is kind of what you were just talking about and something that is sadly more common now that a lot of the camps are closed. Is this more common? Like, is this kind of the situation that you're talking about? In some areas, yes. Now, what makes it difficult for us is that this is a remote village, the one you're talking about with the two girls, and we have to uh, supply water trucking and provide water to this village, which is uh, now only uh, 38 families returned. But, you know, most of the houses were damaged. There was a lot of fighting there a couple of years ago. So now we have to uh, supply water through water trucking and uh, pave the road uh, to to allow easy access. And then we're thinking of building a, a water reservoir near the village because they have a good location for that. So they can benefit from collecting the, the water in the in the winter months with the rain and keeping it till the, the summer and spring and summer. So they can use those water resources if we can uh, build the reservoir. And uh, we will bring all the um, transformers, electricity supplies that were in the decommissioned camp to these villages so that we can provide them with electricity. So this is a first step in in supporting them uh, to go back. This is, of course, a a farming uh, community. They have farms and it has uh, great agricultural potential, but they need water, so hence the uh, water reservoir. That's very important. I think that's very the word's not creative, but to use all of the resources that were in the camp to then help remote villages is very ingenious. I, resourceful, I guess, is the word. Then I want to switch gears because you did mention you worked in um, Syria and Bangladesh. What's some unique features of the crisis, I guess, in Iraq that you didn't encounter or that might just be very different than the crisis in Syria or the Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh? Well, every one of the three countries has unique features. I mean, in terms of weather, in terms of geography, uh, landscape. Uh, for example, you look at Bangladesh, and then it's it's very rainy with with seasonal rain and uh, cyclones, and then you have a lot of flooding there. This region doesn't have a lot of uh, rainfall. And it's it's very hot and dry in the summer, and you have camps that are uh, established in desert areas and uh, with no infrastructure. Like Iraq has a lot of these IDP camps that that were established for the first time a couple of years ago in 2014 to 16. So they had to install and connect them to the water systems, to electricity grid, and uh, you know the, a lot of work has been done to establish them. And perhaps Iraq is uh, is not unique in the sense that it has a lot of displacement. It had a lot of displacement during the past five, six years, just like Syria. And uh, the only difference is that Iraq uh, was able, we were able with the help of the international community and the uh, United Nations system and NGOs to bring back or bring back, uh, support the returnees, and slowly they're getting going back. Unlike Syria, uh, they're, they're not. And in uh, Bangladesh, of course, that's a refugee situation. At this, Firas went to get the doorbell you just heard. 
As he conversed with his unexpected guests, it gave me time to reflect on what I had learned from Firas so far. While the situation in Iraq did seem to be getting better as more IDPs returned home, there was still an unimaginable amount of work to be done. As of August 2020, around 4.7 million Iraqi IDPs or refugees have returned home. However, these individuals are still people of concern, as Firas has mentioned, because many individuals lack proper access to education, electricity, water supply, winter gear, and healthcare access, and so much more, even after they've returned home. I reflected on the story of the two girls who returned to their village because the IDP camp closed, who must not only contend with a global pandemic now, but also have to navigate returning home and not having access to basic necessities. It was really hard for me to imagine. As Firas returned, I asked him about the conversation he just had, or more specifically, what language the conversation took place in, because I'm learning Arabic in university and thought I recognized a few words. Then we got right back into the interview. Are you all speaking Arabic? Yeah, they're Kurds, but I don't speak Kurdish, so they, they speak some Arabic and I can okay. communicate I'm with them. <laughs> Currently learning Arabic in university. So Are you? I'm trying yeah. to recognize words. I heard lots. So that worked. Ahlan wa sahlan, which is welcome. Yeah, shukran. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about the uniqueness of Iraq situation, maybe the Iraqi operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, you see a lot of similarities within the IDP camps, the internally displacement persons camp, and the refugee situation. But of course, every nation, every um, group of people, they have their unique features and different needs. For example, in Bangladesh, the weather is tropical. Most of the year, it's very warm and you only have the, the rain in the season, in the seasonal rain in the season. So they don't need high thermal blankets. They don't uh, require quilts, um, uh, whereas in Syria and Iraq, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cold, and you know the requirements are different. I think Iraq is uh, also unique in that uh, it has different uh, different compositions of different people I and mean, diversity and different ethnic groups, just like Syria also. Uh, so you have. Yazidis, uh, you have Christian people, Muslims, they're all uh, equal in terms that they had to be displaced, they had to move, and the you know, uh, war and armed conflict does not distinguish between people. So everybody is, is affected and uh, everybody suffers. The suffering starts the moment you leave your home. I would love it if you could touch a little, I think, again, for United States perspective, when we think of a lot of the suffering that refugees face, it is more of the external, um, dealing with the elements and dealing with walking places and trying to uproot your life. Um, but I know that there is a lot of other circumstances that refugees have to deal with, including like violence against women, um, refugee children deal with their own sort of problems. There's mental health. Um, I would love it if you could touch a little bit about that situation, mental health, I guess, more importantly, or violence against women, um, and then a lot of the services that might be provided to help. Okay. During the COVID-19 lockdown and this uh, new situation that we were facing for the first time, countries in, in total lockdown, towns, uh, you know, different uh, uh, restrictions that were enforced has affected the economy, of course, and that alone has impacted people 
and their um, psychological status and led to increased gender-based violence. The lockdown and all that uh, lack of livelihood uh, affected people in so many different ways. Their uh, psychological status, the um, increase in gender-based violence and uh, domestic violence, unfortunately, has been uh, on the rise during the pandemic months. And with our partners, we've been working in most parts to uh, raise awareness. Um, we have established helplines. We have actually, we have a hotline for help established in Iraq and a call center and an emergency help center to deal with these issues and to help people and to raise awareness that just because you're in a crisis there are and sitting at home and you're without work that's not the end of the world you can people can still have quality time with the family provide we, we do offer assistance and we did uh, provide cash assistance so you know people should feel um, uh, lucky that you know it, it it could it could be worse and uh, you know we try to support uh, these communities that are already vulnerable so having the pandemic and the impact the after the the aftermath of of the pandemic uh, really affected them uh, economically and psychologically so yes there's a lot of help we have uh, uh, supported uh, several radio stations in providing uh, talk shows that uh, interview people and and get calls from people answer basic questions and talk about bringing experts to talk about you know how you can protect yourself in, during these difficult times the one other thing i remember that when we were talking about the differences between iraq and the other countries you mentioned that there are more safe voluntary returns in iraq than syria which signifies to me at least that it seems like the situation is getting better I know this is a very subjective question um, and things can change very quickly, but what do the trends suggest? I mean, where do you see, I guess, this conflict in the situation in 10 years? Well, let's hope that uh, it, it, it will uh, be better in 10 years and that there will be no more displacement, in internal fighting or any kind of armed conflict that would lead people to flee again. Now, if you look across the region and globally, unfortunately, the number of displaced people around the, the world has been increasing steadily in the past few years. So now it reached the alarming figure of 80 million for the first time. And that is like the size of many countries when you say 80 million people. And if that were to be a population of a country, that the rank of this country would be probably in the first 15 so it's it's it, it's a big number, and uh, it needs a lot of uh, help because not only when displacement ends and refugees go home, they also need support because they uh, go back to uh, their places of origin sometimes without services. Sometimes uh, they have no jobs, so there's a lot of investment to be made in, in in livelihood programs and supporting them. And then in some cases. Uh, they're not accepted by their communities for one reason or the other. So you have to work on reconciliation and trying to reintegrate these people in the new communities. So durable solutions, we seek durable solutions, but it's easier said than done. I'm going to pop in here once more to quickly explain what durable solutions are. There are three so-called durable solutions for refugees. 
The first is voluntary repatriation, or the decision of individuals to return home. This is what Firas and I have been largely discussing. The second option is integration into the host community, or the community where the refugee has fled to. The final solution is resettlement in a safe third country. Less than 1% of refugees worldwide have been resettled in this manner. You know, durable solutions are long-term, they're costly, they need the help of other entities like the local authorities, the host communities, and the refugee and displaced population themselves. They need to be um, uh, supported from different aspects and then development at a global level in each country, you know, you need to invest in development. So far, this pandemic has uh, resulted in uh, no schools for millions of students and children in the region. Okay, now, yes, they do have online um, schooling and Iraq just decided uh, this month uh, to, uh, to have a one day per week classrooms in schools and that will start early 2021. But that's not enough, you know. Uh, already, quality of education uh, lacks. You have literacy, illiteracy rates are high. Uh, the crisis and the pandemic and people uh, that are displaced usually drop out of school. There, there's a high ratio of... Uh, so if, if you don't have all of those, the result will not be a community that can uh, work and survive and um, uh, support itself, but you'll have a lot of uh, dependent people on help, on assistance. So we need to invest in, in, their, uh, in, in rebuilding these communities, and that takes, uh, that takes uh, some time. What would you say is the biggest need, I guess, that would help you with these solutions? Is it more funding from outside countries um, to the UN? Is it better cooperation between the UN and local, or I guess local governments in the UN? Um, or is it something else? Well, it could be it could be all of the above. I mean, yes, we do need more funding to to keep on providing assistance. We need funding to invest in long long term durable solutions. We need international cooperation and support of government so that the government can be trained and you know its uh, staff members can can be trained to deal with this situation and they can be geared up to help in the new phase after conflict because post-conflict situations are just as difficult as conflict situations because you have different new challenges a variety of of, of challenges that need to be addressed and economy and is just one aspect you know you have education you have healthcare, you have people who have been um, living in displacement for uh, years and years like since 2010 or 2011 so these people have been um, living abnormally with no proper education. They only get the bare minimum. So in order to turn that around and turn these communities into uh, engaged communities to help the society into, um, you know, to have uh, good uh, jobs, to go back to their previous lives before the conflict, that takes a lot of time, effort. Uh, financial resources, and a lot of uh, determination. The last question I want to ask is a lot of uh, the podcast audience are students in, in college or just local working individuals throughout our community, um, just more local in the United States Southeast. 
what would you recommend? How, how can they help? Is it simply by, I mean, one of the things we really try to do is just raise awareness. Um, but for people who want to make more of a difference, is it donating to UNHCR? Is it more helping resettled refugees? Or what would you say is one of the greatest ways that people my age, um, where I'm located, can help with maybe the crisis in Iraq, but maybe the crisis, the global refugee crisis in general? Uh, yes, sure. People can help. People make change every day and support the United Nations and its work and operations around the world. Of course, we would like for every one of your listeners to become a champion for UNHCR, to become a supporter. When, uh, if you go to our uh, website, unhcr.org, or our Facebook uh, uh, page or our social media uh, platforms, you can share videos. You can, uh, you know, uh, support pro- ongoing uh, programs. If you would like to donate, uh, you go to donate.unhcr.org. You can make a difference. Even a simple, a few dollars can change a family's life. For example, if if you donate uh, as much as um, sixteen to twenty dollars, you can uh, help a family buy uh, all what it needs for uh, water and hygiene things they need for storing water, transporting water, and staying clean and healthy, or even buy two or three blankets for the winter. So any uh, small amount can help and make a big difference in people's lives. We have a lot of needs and growing needs. So it does not, the UN by itself cannot keep on supporting all these uh, issues, but we invest in uh, in a better future for these uh, people. So you can help in so many uh, ways by raising awareness, accepting uh, refugees. They're not a threat to societies, but they're a, a plus. They can be a great workforce. Uh, they're uh, law-abiding law uh, citizens. They become positive part of any community. You can help by sharing material uh, online through the social media platforms, and you can uh, help by donating, of course. Of course. I also, I believe I saw either through your own Twitter or through one of the offices in Iraq um, that I believe the UNHCR supports a platform where refugees are able to sell goods that they create or that they make. And I think it was, there's a bunch of like artisan goods. They also, there was a way to purchase masks. I don't know if you know anything about that, but for our listeners, especially with um, Christmas and American holidays coming up. I believe that those are great gifts if anyone would like to find another way to support refugees. Yes. In the United States, we have a partner which is called Preemptive Love. And uh, this is an NGO that helps uh, Iraqi women in displacement in, uh, in refugee camps to make uh, these little handicrafts that are uh, very beautiful and useful. And uh, they help them improve the design and the output, and they're sold through uh, different websites uh, in the United States, of course. And there's an international project uh, called Made 51, uh, which is uh, a variety of things and items produced by refugees and sold uh, internationally all over the world. I think that's the the one that ends in 51, Made 51. Made 51. Yeah, that's the one I saw, um, which I think is such a a very good resource to get access to a global market. I know that these issues are too complex to talk about really in 30 minutes. I'm sure I left out many things, but is there anything that 
um, you really want to talk about before we end that you want to make sure that our listeners know or something that I didn't bring up at all that you want to discuss? I would like to remind listeners that nobody, nobody chooses to become a refugee or a displaced person. People are usually uh, forced to flee because of armed conflict, because of reasons beyond their own control. And we cannot blame them. We cannot treat them as outcasts. We should uh, engage with them in, uh, and, and provide uh, all the help we can until they can get back on their feet. I second that wholeheartedly. Um, that is a very, very important reminder. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. And thank you for talking with me today. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I cannot wait for everyone else to hear this episode and hopefully learn more about what UNHCR does, uh, what they can do to help and just raise awareness about the situation in Iraq. So thank you. Shukran. Thank you. Afwan. Ahla sahla. All right. That was Firas Al-Khatib talking to us about the situation in Iraq and the work UNHCR does in the region. The resources we mentioned for purchasing goods made by refugees or IDPs are linked in the show notes for this episode, so be sure to check them out. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making this show possible. And that closes out our last episode of 2020. We've come a long way this year, and we would like to thank all of you for listening to our journey, whether you listened for the whole year or just found us today. Our team is all students, so we will be off for the next few weeks, but we'll be back in mid-January 2021 with the last two episodes of this season, and then we'll start an exciting new one. Stay safe, have happy holidays, and we'll see you in the next one. 